we were on number 411 last week, but I feel like there's a little more we could do with that, so I'm going to keep going. <clears throat> okay. So number 411, I'm going to read it again. The characteristics of personality being held together by impact and reaction, desire and attachment, disappear upon the cessation of these four. And then the first line of it, which I really loved, our personalities are not our own, much less so, in fact, than the belief that our egos are our own. That was sort of, I'm not sure how much I said about it last week, but it doesn't matter, I want to go back. Um, This uh, constant effort on the part of the masters to um, dissect the difference between our actual reality and what we think of as our reality is actually, they're, they're extremely persistent in this. And I, I appreciate just even these, these two steps. You know, the idea of an ego is just the, the basic idea that my infinite self has become limited and therefore vulnerable to all the forces of limitation. But the personality that we have on top of it is yet a separate reality. And that seems like that's worth noting because the ego is just the fact of identification. And the personality we put on top of it, we tend to think of them as the same thing, but they're not actually the same thing. Because the, the ego is just the fact of that identification. The personality is the sum total of the impact and our reactions and all our desires and all our attachments. When Swamiji was talking, let me think what the context was exactly. I, I can't remember. It might even have been about Diamato or something like that. But he was just talking about that's just a personality. It's just what's on top of it. It's not a state of realization. Um, I, he was talking about Durgamata in that context, who was, Master said, was an extremely highly advanced soul after Gyanamata in her state of realization. And she had just a very sharp personality. But it was just her personality. It was such a, uh, it wasn't even um, her ego. You don't understand the difference? And it's very important for us because we become very involved in our personalities, the way we react to things, and we, we tend to become mm, disturbed. That We allow the facts of our personalities to disturb us. It's just one of the, it's part of the delusion. It's all like we come out from spirit and we just go all the way down to this final end point where we, we not only are the body that we're living in, but we're all these really superficial reaction, superficial compared to what's really going on inside. Swami was talking, uh, talking. He was ta- he was writing in this, what I was reading, about our state of freedom is the only thing that actually matters. That was the point. It, I've been reading a lot about the history of Ananda and SRF just because I'm doing research for this book and that's where I am on it right now. But... Uh, Swami was just talking about the different points of view that the different SRF leaders had and this this limitation and that expansion. But he said, the only thing that matters is how free you are in your heart. You could be all caught up in all kinds of circumstances, but the moment death comes, you just walk away from it. You know, And that's, what, that's the only thing that really matters. And even when Swami asked Master, you know, when you were William the Conqueror, did you have an awareness of your uh, spirituality at the same time? And Master's response was interesting for the, for the one who incarnates consciously for an avatar. He said, in your heart you are always free. You can see the difference, you know, in your heart you are always free. And, and it, it's, it's sort of fun, I think, to, 
to try to make that distinction. Like in your personality, you may be very involved. But in your heart, you can still be free. You can be involved because it's your nature to be involved. You know, because you have Mars in a certain house in your horoscope, it makes you fiery and reactive and this and that. But that's just a personality. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're really attached. It just means that's how you express yourself in this world. I remember someone was complaining about some woman who seemed a little over the top. And Swamiji, sort of reading our minds, said this exactly. Don't you just love her intensity? He said like that. We did not love her intensity. <laughs> but it was just her intensity. It was just the way she was. It didn't really have any... It was just her personality. And, and I love that they push us back a little bit on this one. Let me think there was another couple of points here that I wanted to... Um, I was just trying to tune into the fact um, because the characteristics of personality are held together. See, this is, this is really, this whole, uh, this whole sutra is about personality. It's not even about ego. Impact and reaction, desire and attachment. Okay? Um, the characteristics of personality being held together by impact and reaction, desire and attachment disappear upon the cessation of these four. Once we're no longer being impacted by events, and therefore reacting to them, and then developing desires which form attachments. Once all of that stops, then you don't have a personality anymore either. Because that's all your personality is, is the way, the way you allow things to affect you, and then how you respond to them, and then all the desires and attachments that form after that. I mean, it's... Uh, what does that look like? That doesn't mean that you don't, let's see, you still would have a personality, but all of that would be under your control. You wouldn't have desires and attachments, and you wouldn't actually ever be reacting, and nothing would be impacting you. But that doesn't mean that you don't continue to participate. It's that now you you are a choice. Well, here, exactly. Swami said, Master did not have a personality. Remember, he said he did not have a personality of his own. That's why when Swamiji said he would hear people say, oh, Master loved mangoes. Master didn't like it when people did this. You know, Master always wanted like this. Swamiji said Master had no personality. He had whatever personality was required in order to be an instrument of the divine in the circumstances. And that doesn't mean he didn't manifest a personality. Well, whatever, even personality. There's a story, a peculiar story Swami tells about Master being in the kitchen and there was a spider. Suddenly Master was manifesting this enormous fear of spiders and very concerned that someone needed to come and get the spider out of the kitchen. Swamiji just was like totally um, bemused. He couldn't figure out what was going on. He never did figure out what was going on, but it was self-evidently for the benefit of some disciple. Swami tells the story about Master excoriating some nun for something that she'd done and shouting at her and waving his arms and then turning around and just kind of winking at the guy who was sitting on the other side of the room and then turning back and doing this again. So, you know, he gave the impression that he was very concerned about this issue, but he was always the incomplete Master. He was never reacting. He was never compelled by the desire or attachment. 
Now, I can't really parse apart farther than that, but I, that's why Master's face always looked so different, and he look, could look just like the people he was with. Well, I think that's the answer to that. That is, okay. It's, that is the answer to that. You know, Swami said that Yogananda had no personality. Yeah, because he didn't. It's more like an act than a personality. Yeah, okay. Um, Chidambar, you had a comment also? Okay, uh, Chidambar is quoting uh, Swamiji saying that I'm, uh, Kriyananda is an event for which I am responsible. So Kriyananda was definitely a recognizable person, personality even, but it wasn't, it didn't belong to him. It, it wasn't compelled. It was chosen. It was an expression of God. It was freely uh, assumed. I mean, I remember when I was complaining to Swamiji about someone I had to work with who was just overbearing. And I just found them so difficult to work with. Swami's response, I loved it. He said, oh, yes, I know. He said, but when that person's in the room, I just don't bother to have a personality. That's what he said. Because there's not, you know, that person has all the personality there's room for in any situation. He said, so I just don't bother to have one. You know, just like, I don't, what do I need to be? That person wants to fill all the space, let them fill all the space. What, what does it matter? It was enormously helpful to me because I suddenly realized that the only problem I was really having with that person is that I was competing. And if I didn't compete, there was really no issue at all. And it wasn't even a matter of principle or anything like that. It was entirely just the way they expressed themselves. They just needed a lot of room, and there wasn't any room for anyone else, but so what? You were talking about kindness this morning? Yes, in a completely other setting I was, yes. And um, so I'm just trying to figure out how being kind, because Swami was saying that it's kind of like a, a requirement, not a requirement, it is, um, but it was Okay, the question, I'll just repeat it. Yeah. The question was about the concept of kindness, which in another setting I was talking about the importance of kindness. Kindness itself is a manifestation of love, which is how Swami put it. Kindness is, is love, an active expression of love. But the principle behind kindness is love. So sometimes kindness is not the appropriate expression. It's sometimes, sometimes love expresses in completely other ways. So love is the principle. Kindness is just a specific expression of it. So... But love... Love isn't personality, isn't isn't no love is a no love is a divine principle. Okay, right. And some personalities are kind, and some are not. But they can still be loving. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're mean. It's just that they don't they don't express anything. I mean, and don't 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 take that apart too far. No, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Because sometimes I I I remember seeing um, somebody. With a real crabby mother, and but but the the person adored the mother, and I was thinking that, that they must know that the mother loves loves this person so much, even though she was you know hard to be around. But they right. just so no, I, I understand. Yeah, okay. yeah. Do you remember um, Saranya performed for us once one entertaining day this poem about a really tough mother? Yeah, I mean it was a it was a humorous poem about a really tough mother, but the whole 
story behind the really tough mother was what a great loving mother she was. <laughs> Underneath it, you could feel it all. But, you know, it was... So it's, it's all... And that's the difference between the personality and the principle. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes, I'm in the back, please. As long as we're on the subject uh-huh. of kindness, you know, it's, I, I, I talk about it in classes sometimes. And I always refer to it as this, you know, something that, you know, it never goes out of style in the sense that it's, it's, it's always appropriate. So is it not regardless of whether a person has a kind nature or a particular personality, as a, is it not a higher principle? What's well, a higher principle, but the principle behind it is love. I was actually thinking about a person may essentially express nothing in particular. I wasn't saying they should express unkindness, but it's just they may not really manifest anything. They may be just content to hold their energy completely within themselves. It just may not come out at all. Even with that, and maybe maybe it's a separate subject, but isn't there something about kindness that... Well, you can imagine circumstances in which sternness is appropriate. You can imagine circumstances in which, you know, retribution or some kind of, you know... Uh, what may seem to be others to be a harsh response might be in order because it's necessary for the development of that soul. But that could still be, you see, a manifestation of love. Yes. It just would be a different manifestation of love because it would, and there would be, then you could also argue if you just want to that that was the kindest thing to do. And then it gets, you know, gets just about, about a lot of words. Yeah. Yet underlying... Would Pardon always, me? Un- underlying any of those particular expressions would be kindness, would it not? Whether it's expressed overtly or not? Yes, if you want to say, if, if the principle, yes, if the principle is love. I mean, be otherwise. If the principle is love. Yeah. Just like a surgeon, sometimes the fastest route to freedom is pain. And the guru doesn't hesitate to cause the pain because he knows where he's taking you. But, well, I'll just, I'll quote what Swami said when, Shivani was, was struggling to make the garden work at Ananda village and people were unreliable in their um, commitment to the plants. And she said, I know that people are more important than things, but sometimes those plants will die if the people don't come out there and water them. She said, sometimes isn't the project more important than people's egos? And Swami said, yes, but be very sure you can tell the difference between their soul welfare and their ego before you act. <laughs> so that's sort of how it stands. A master can be certain, but the rest of us might be reacting to the impact that a person's actions have on us and then be actually working from attachment and desire. So we have to be careful. And just, so when in doubt, be kind. Yes, go ahead. I just wanted to make a comment about um, somebody that I've gotten to know where I live. When I first met her, I just didn't want to talk to her at all. She has a very abrasive personality. But I have gotten to really like her. I consider her a friend. That doesn't mean I can talk to her all the time, but she just has this really difficult personality. And then I thought, that's just her personality. That's just personality. That's exactly so it was right. a very good lesson. Sometimes people are badly raised, or with all due respect, they're from New York. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, they just are, and they're just behaving in ways that look like normal to them, and to Californians look like, what planet are you from? Oh, you're from New York. (laughs) 
<laughs> it does pretty much. But I remember Swami comforted someone who was complaining about someone else, and Swami just said, oh, they're just from New York, just like that. And after that, that was what the person always said, oh, they're just from New York. And they were. Yeah, it was just normal in their, in their particular universe. Yes. Sorry. I have a question. It's going in a different direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so who the person is, who I am, is not the ego and is not the personality. Yeah, like, so where are we? Yes. <laughs> so, <are>. so <laughs> well, when, when we let go of this body and hopefully let go of the karma and all of that, we still recognize each other. No, wait, wait. The word let go of this body has to be modified by we let go of the physical body. The astral body, the causal body are still there. The chakras, the karma, it's all still there. We're just not in a physical body anymore. That's why we recognize each other. Because the definition of us is the vibration that the physical body is the last manifestation. You know, you have to keep going. But the way we recognize each well, when we're all gone, we're one. There's nobody to recognize. But I thought we still do recognize. Because even so we the astral body is still there. We would recognize Master, for example. Would we recognize Master, for example? Well, yes, because he would make himself known to us. If we, okay. were, not united, if we were unified, if we had merged into him, there would be no recognition required. And if we hadn't, he would maintain some vibration so we could still see him. Okay, and that vibration. I mean, that's would, what he did when he walked yes. around. He just maintained a vibration so we could still see him, but he was not. He was he was vibrating at a certain level so his disciples could find him. You know, it reminds me of the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus when he yes. met his disciples, and they didn't recognize right, him. So exactly. his body was not the same, and his personality or whatever they recognized him not at or, all or until he looked, or perhaps he looked exactly the same, but he put a veil over their minds so they couldn't recognize him. It's not explained. It's just that they were talking to him for a while before they knew who they were talking to. Of the bread, it was something that he did that they were perhaps familiar with, that they recognized him. But that was all happening That's... on such a subtle level. I doubt if it was because he broke the bread, it was because he lifted the veil. Okay. He himself yeah. lifted the veil. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. You know, it's, it, that, all that's happening on a level that's really hard for us to comprehend. Swami talks about, you know, Master not allowing certain thoughts to arise, you know, in his presence. They, they just... I don't want to use the word they toy with us because they're not whimsical, but, you know, they just, their powers, their, their reality is just not ours. We're just in their hands at all times. And the less we resist that, the more we are in their hands. Yeah. So. Huh. And they read, the, you know, Swami says when Master was talking about uh, Sister Gyanamata being completely liberated and Swami remembered that you had to have disciples to be completely liberated. And he didn't ask the question, he just thought the question. And then Master said immediately, oh, she had disciples. Swamiji would, would sometimes, I mean, he didn't do it, it wasn't like he, well, yeah, he probably did it uh, deliberately. He would often not really quite say what he wanted to say. He would train your intuition. And that a lot of a certain a certain amount of communication around him just took place without ever being articulated, even though it was clear communication. It was kind of a joke that he just, especially toward the end. But he, because Leela was with him so much, he just started calling everyone Leela, and you just had to intuit whether or not you were the Leela he was asking about. <laughs> but you could somehow you knew who he was talking to. Just he just randomly used her name because it was the one he said the most often at that time before Narayani came. 
And it was just lots of different things like that where you just had to catch it and he was working with you to be able to. And lots of times you just pass you just pass thoughts around. But when we do it all the time, everybody does it. It was just you were just he did it more. And you know, lots of times like that, the thought would you just it would, the thought would occur to you and he would just answer it and it was just as as if it had been articulated. I don't mean to exaggerate this, because it really happens all the time. It just was more, a little bit more, a lot more around him. You just pick up what it was that it was trying to happen. Or sometimes, if you asked him to clarify, he would just say, well, use your intuition. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not going to clarify it. It's up to you. You come, you come to me. I'm not going to come to you. <laughs> Pardon me? Yeah, it was fun. Okay. So, now we're up to 4.12. Past and future exist not only subjectively but objectively because of countless differences among the beings involved. It's a great one, actually. Past and future exist not only subjectively but objectively because of countless differences among the beings involved. We are moving on to 4.12, but I think we could spend a lot of our life on 4.11. I mean, you can see how you can just do a few of these sutras and then just stay there forever, but we're not going to. Um, The commentary on 412. When a Jivan Mukta who has attained Nirbhakalpa Samadhi um, sees of his... No, excuse me. What a Jivan Mukta who has attained Nirbhakalpa Samadhi sees of his past has virtually no impact on the future. For many people's lives are involved and not only his own. He may remember, for instance, having once started a forest fire that destroyed many homes. He can see in his own understanding that that deed was actually perpetrated by God himself in the vastness of his great dream. But the knowledge doesn't alter the effects on others of that deed. He cannot truly expiate, in other words, the sin of having started that fire He can only achieve freedom from the burden which has darkened his own past karma. Now, this is another one we could spend a long time here. And and I'm going to just kind of slightly guess at some of the meanings here. And I'll just tell you what this seems to me. Okay. It's, first of all, all of karma is interrelated. And one of the things that our ego does is it exaggerates our individual responsibility for things. I mean, isn't, isn't this how we all suffer? We do something wrong and then we just are so worried about it and I shouldn't have said it or maybe I shouldn't have acted like that and it just goes on and on and on because we are deeply identified with the action and therefore we believe that we ourselves caused all these things to happen. The Jivan Mukta looks at it and sees even that in his delusion he did something deliberate the soul, the ego that was him, did something deliberate that had maybe terrible repercussions, but it was only God acting through him. But the action was still done, and all of that rolls on, and it's all an interrelated whole. He can't neutralize the effect of that action. That's not how his freedom is attained. His freedom is by realizing that it was always God acting through him, that he was always part of this greater whole. And the illusion that he was acting as an independent agent, that, that's what holds him. It's not 
the action or its consequences, because those consequences was everybody's karma, is another way of looking at this, which is that God would never have found him and used him if it wasn't everybody's karma to have those experiences. And he is one now liberated soul, can't expiate, can't end that karma for everyone. Everybody has to just keep going along. And this is where it says, past and future exist not only subjectively, not only for, the one, for one individual who has the impression, but ob- objectively because there's so many other center points of spirit and they're all also living through all of theirs. Okay, now and that's a little complicated, but I hope that helps some. Yes, please pass the microphone back to Nishkama. Yeah, and I think the next step is that all those others who are affect, affected by the karma, even though the subject himself is not, the subject is not because he recognizes that God is the doer. And as soon as all these other folks that are accept, affected by the karma that he started as an ego are uh, aware uh, that God is really the doer as well, they too will cease to be affected anymore and so on. But that's the point at which it ends, is when each individual center is dissolved into the whole. It can't, the whole thing can't be dissolved because one center. And I mean, this is, a, this is a point people argue about, you know, if I am the center of the universe, then when I change, the entire dream is different. And Patanjali is saying, no, actually, the dream continues. The dream has this objective reality that goes on and on. You individually may drop out of it, but it... it it's, very, it's a very egocentric version to think just because I drop out of it, the whole dream stops. And Patanjali, yeah, exactly. And, but, and, and a lot of uh, so-called spiritual teaching of modern times is really very, very egocentric. Very, the ego is in charge of everything. You see, that's why even though it seems progressive, a lot of it is actually insidious because it actually... Because it does not have God, it, if it's almost the same without God, it's not the same at all. Because almost the same without God may get some cause and effects, but all the cause keeps coming back to the ego, and the net result of that may be to strengthen rather than dissolve the ego. You've got to have God in the picture. You must be relating to a greater power and a greater reality than just yourself, or, or no amount of New Age philosophy is really going to take us forward. It's going to take us into somebody else's preferences. It's not going to really take us forward. Forward has to be the realization that God is the doer, and that's really the only way around this. And God uses, see, what's so interesting is that it's all very interrelated. You know, the, 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 the victim and the victimizer, the the error and the consequences, the, it, just, it's all, it doesn't happen unless it's supposed to happen. And this is a very important point because, well, I, I've had to learn that slowly thinking that if somebody was having a lot of trouble with someone or someone was acting in a way that wasn't appropriate, that I had to go and rescue them. And then I began to realize, oh, it's their karma to have to deal with that. That doesn't mean I can't support them or help them or you know, add something useful if I can, but it wouldn't be happening to that person if, they, if it wasn't a karmic necessity for them to face it. Somebody else would be standing face-to-face in front of that difficulty. It's God acting, and God will find the vehicles he needs. Somebody's life needs to end, he'll find a drunk driver. You know, and, and the, it's not good for the drunk driver to have done it, but a drunk driver was needed for someone else's karma. 
that's where all of this anger and lawsuits and somebody must be responsible and somebody has to pay, again, is so insidious because that means nobody, there's no plan, there's no higher power, nobody is acting, there's no harmony, there's no positive resolution, there's just me and what I want and you have to pay it. My favorite story in that, and you may have heard me tell it, but I love this one, is the Golden Buddha in Thailand, which sits in Bangkok and it's made out of gold and it's this hugely revered, huge object, gold Buddha. That gold Buddha sat by the side of a river for apparently several centuries covered in ceramic. And everybody, it was a nice Buddha, but it was just sitting there and it was covered with ceramic. And at some point, somebody decided that it was a nice statue and ought to be brought into town. This was some centuries ago before we had mechanical means. And they rigged a cart of some sort. This is a story that's told. It's very heavy and they managed to move it onto the cart. They got it about halfway to where they wanted to take it. And it was too heavy for the cart. The cart cracked apart. The whole statue fell. It hit the sidewalk and the ceramic smashed. And of course, during the time that it was collapsing and falling over and hitting the sidewalk, people were entirely freaked out. When it hit the sidewalk, it was discovered that under the ceramic was gold. And tracing back the tradition, they deduced that at some point of wealth, the Buddha had been made out of gold, then the barbarian hordes were coming, and whoever had it shrouded it so that it wouldn't be known and moved it out to a seemingly inauspicious spot so that the barbarians would not be able to have the benefit of that statue. But then, I guess, everybody was wiped out and they forgot. So I always think about this, that the man who engineered the cart had to have the chutzpah to believe he could do it, but he had to be just not quite competent enough (laughs) to actually be able to move the thing. And so God had to find just the right person. And oftentimes when, I mean, there's a lot of analogies you can draw from that story, but oftentimes when I have done something that seemed like a good idea at the time, but then turned out to not have very good consequences, I have to remind myself that Divine Mother needs instruments. And if she needed the instrument of somebody who was going to mess up enough to be able to roll the karma out for everyone, well, here's, here I am. <laughs> and it doesn't make it, it doesn't mean that, you know, I wasn't asleep at the wheel. It just means that we're all part of an interrelated pattern here. And we're always being used by God and Guru, sometimes to ways that are uplifting to us and sometimes not, but it isn't, we're not alone. And even when we cause unfortunate things to happen to others, those unfortunate things were destined. I mean, I I had this thought recently just about some things that were just going on. I thought, you know what? This impacts me, you know, other people's actions and so on. But it really doesn't have anything to do with me. These people are acting out their karma, and I'm in the way. And so it's upsetting to me. Somebody speaks unkindly, somebody forgets to, to, you know, my reality. Just all the various, make, this, make this the list. Everybody has a list. And you always think that it's about you. Why didn't you consider me? That's what you want to say. Don't you understand how I feel? Well, 
No, obviously they don't. <laughs> because you're not the point. They're just acting out their own karma and it impacts you, but it doesn't have anything to do with you. Can you see the difference? Yeah. It's a, really, it's a very powerful thought. Because then you don't have to spend all that energy trying to make it about you. <laughs> you just have to get over it. Which, uh, believe me, is not so simple. But at least the project reduced itself down you know, to something that's within your control. And then you rise to the point where it doesn't even have an impact on you. You're just there, and people do things, and you just realize this just doesn't have anything to do with me. That's where Swami can, you know, people can insult him or be very disrespectful to him. And I mean, I hear people say sometimes, well, they, you know, they just didn't treat me with any respect. Like, so? <laughs> But if, it, if, the, if other people's actions, if you realize it's just about them, it's not about you, think, how, think about the freedom of that. And I only think about the freedom of that, but it's worth thinking about. Yes? But it might have to be about you. It might have to do with you to the degree that you can learn from it or avoid that in the future, or you just don't want to go blindly on. Oh. I'm not considering it. I didn't say you didn't have to consider it, but it's different to try to get everybody involved in you. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah. yeah. It's just like they're just acting out their karma. And you know, you can think for yourself whether or not what I need to do is speak up. But that's quite different than actually thinking that it's all about it's you. Yours. It's Yeah. It's just, it's happening around you. And the, the more you realize that things just happen around you and they're not about me, you see there's no me there to and have a response anymore. Because see, even the obsessive, what am I supposed to do about this? What am I supposed to learn? You know, how am I supposed to respond? What's right for me? There's a, a common thread in there, which is me. <laughs> <laughs> and if you can get rid of that too, and just, hmm, look at that. You know, this is the part in which the heroine is greatly insulted by all the people around her. Hmm. I was in a circumstance once where it was revealed to me what a group of people who I greatly respect actually thought about me, which it, it, was, it, was, it wasn't that it was uncomplimentary. It was just I didn't really quite see myself in the same light. And it was just extremely interesting. Wow, look at what all these people think. And I took it seriously, but it was a, a marvelous moment of detachment also. Just wow, how interesting this is. Look at, look at this. Look who I must be. Fascinating provoke this kind of a reaction. Very impersonal. See how free you can be? And I'm not saying that I can be that way. I remember that incident because it was so notable. <laughs> yeah, because really nothing that happens is about you. Impact and reaction, desire and attachment. That's what binds the whole piece together. And if it has no impact on you, provokes no reaction, you know, if there's no desire and no attachment, then the whole personality, there's no personality to hold together. There's just divine spirit sitting there without any cloak. Patanjali is not for sissies. <laughs> I said is not for sissies. Patanjali is not for sissies. <laughs> I find myself feeling this way. Are you, re- are you feeling impacted or you are reacting? Un- unimpacted. Okay. <laughs> Uh, often these days, and sometimes it feels like I'm not interested, or I have a lack of um, engagement because I'm just things are passing by, and I'm just like, mm. you well, 
Um, a couple of weeks ago, I believe, I talked about the difference between indifference and detachment. Okay, indifference is low energy, is you know, just, just not having, not generating enough awareness to really care, um, just, you know, whatever. <laughs> then that's, then, and, then and that can inter- be. And interested, but not. Right, that's affected. good. That's good. That's called vairagya. That's called detachment. Impersonality. It's just like. No, that's called grace. Yes, those are all very good qualities. As long as you're fully aware, fully energetic, fully ready, but just simply not reacting anymore. Why should I get so engaged in this? Yeah, it's called freedom. It's a nice quality. I like that word freedom better than. Freedom is a very good word. And you, you have to be sincere. I mean, you're a, you're a peppy, wide awake gal, so I don't think we're talking about indifference here. But sometimes people do drift off into subconsciousness and think that they're becoming super conscious. So we always have to warn about that. But as long as you're fully right there, completely awake, interested in observing, but centered and neutral and non-reactive, that's real good. And it's not the way the world responds. And it's not the way we've necessarily been habituated to responding. What is day to the worldly man is night to the yogi. What is night to the worldly man is day to the yogi. And many worldly, by that I mean people who, are, who live from the outside. That's what that means, worldly. They live from the outside instead of from the inside. And they just have to keep the show going all the time. Because otherwise nothing's happening. They don't, there is nothing in, they don't experience anything inside. They walk into this temple, even at our most lively, and they really think nothing is going on in here. And then they walk out. Because there's just nothing going on. It was very interesting. Over the last five days, I spent with family and seven little children. Uh-huh. And, and this was my daughter and, and her cousin. So mm-hmm. it was on, and just a couple of grand, grand, grandparents. And, and to see the interaction in the outside world. And be engaged and be interested, but not really at all the way I used to feel. It was the strangest yeah, isn't that nice? You know, every so often you get to check back into the same reality and you realize you've become different. Um, all I can say is, thank God, it, you know, after all this effort, I should hope so. Peace, I felt. And oh, I good girl. Not Cheer. having ever had that. Yeah, good girl. It works. I mean, a lot of times that's how we actually discover that we've changed. Because we change slowly, like a, like a plant growing. You know, every spring I watch the trees leaf out and I kind of miss the point at which they actually do it. Even I watch them every day, they sneak up on me and somehow they just, they weren't and then they are. Every, every year, happens every year. And that's sort of with us. We're just leafing out, but it's such a natural process. We don't necessarily know it until suddenly we're, we're, we return to a circumstance that we have been in before and then discover what's really happened is literally your vrittis are different. Your karma has shifted. The chakras have changed. Vibrations come in and there's the, an- the answering response has shifted so much that there's no answering response. It's amazing. It is called, thank you, God. That is on your knees, thank you, God. That's what that is. Yeah. Somebody, somebody said... Uh, if you really want to keep track of how you're doing spiritually, and they weren't necessarily re- recommending that you do so, but if you did, then wait every 10 years and check in. Every 10 years and check in, exactly. 
Exactly. And then, or then, you know, you just something, karma hits you and you're just not the same person. I mean, this is why your friends, you change your friends, you change your marriage partners, you change where you live, you change everything because the vibrations have shifted so much. You don't match anymore. I don't, I'm not saying you should, I'm just saying people do because the vibrations are changed. Yeah, okay. So, let's moving right along. Um, fourth, 13. Whether manifested or latent, those characteristics belong to the nature of the gunas. Okay. I, I have written here that I should read 4.13 4, and 4.14 together, so I'll read them both now. This is the commentary. To whether manifested or latent, these characteristics, these characteristics of something or another, belong to the nature of the gunas. The three gunas are everywhere present, indicating as they do only degrees of outward manifestation away from spirit. Even sattva guna, albeit the good quality, is still a quality and therefore separated from the undifferentiated spirit. I'm not going to read together. I'm just going to stay with this. Okay. Let's see. You know, there, I, I, and then number 414, since the gunas work together in all things, there is a unity in them all. All things being only close, farther, and farthest from their essential reality and spirit itself have a certain unity in this simple fact. Okay? How everything looks very different, but it's not really different. It's just a matter of degree of separation from spirit. The most evil and the most saintly are just one is closer and one is farther away from spirit. They're not made of different substances. Okay? A pair of scissors and a human being <laughs> are united in this fact. Two human beings, one a criminal and the other a saint, are similarly so united. A criminal may have longer to wander in delusion, but he is no less than the saint, a manifestation of the same God. Ooh, my, my, my. Um, from our perspective, you know, the gunas, and there's other uh, sutras, number 9, number 32, number 33. I didn't write the book, but I think they're in the first book, about, uh, you know, what the gunas are. Just the gunas are the oscillating waves in the field of creation. And the guru, one of the uh, hymns that we sing, Hymn to Brahma, describes the guru as triguna rahitam, having transcended all the gunas. So you're either moving in the waves of creation, and even though the criminal is oscillating more and farther from the light than the sattvic saintly person is, we're all still trapped in the movement of spirit, and only when we finally realize do we step out of it completely. So from our perspective, all of those shades of difference seem really profound to us. But from the point of view of the master who's outside of it completely, the difference between infinity and limitation is infinite. <laughs> That's why, you know, a scissor and a human being seem really far to us. Swamiji made that comment, you know, at one point an ant and a human being seem really different to us, but it doesn't begin to express the difference in of magnitude of consciousness between even the most sattvic person I mean, and, and mean any human being and a self-realized master because one has turned to infinity. 
And so that, that gap is infinite. Yes, what, what's your question? time he was writing that or somewhere close to it, he inserted the last change in the Festival of Light with even, I can't even Even the worst it. of sinners, you know, are, you know, that God is equally manifested in all, not just Jesus and Krishna, but even those on earth who have sinned most greatly. I always tear up with it's that. A very, it's a very sweet and beautiful, and yes, that's exactly right. And he's just, he's just bringing us back to the the gunas, you know, all of the characteristics within us, as long as we're within the gunas, these are all going to keep happening. There's not, in other words, you can't just um, become free. You can't just take one side of the, of the moving pendulum and get your freedom by just making it stay up on that side, which is what we often, it, some part of us, you know, we're just going to, we're going to get everything really good and that's why recently I made the comment a number of times, to be happy merely because everything is going well is not to be happy, it's only to be pleased. And even I'm meditating really well, you know, I'm getting along really well with my friends, I'm controlling my anger, I'm having a perfect diet, I'm ex- exercising every day, and then therefore I'm good, therefore I'm happy. That's really not the same thing as... Just whatever God wants for me, my happiness comes from loving God. This is the story of Job in the Bible, you know, that horrible story which no one really likes to read, but it's a really good story where every terrible possible thing, you know, including boils, comes to the poor fellow. You know, it's just God takes away everything and what is your happiness? And we don't like those stories. Those are unpleasant stories. But... This is Swamiji saying, and I've reiterated this in these series also. Swami says repeatedly, it doesn't matter whether you're suffering or not suffering. You don't care whether you're suffering or not suffering. Because you're really only interested in freedom and your, your feeling is God acting for you. I remember when Swamiji was suffering from heart failure or fractured vertebrae or I don't know what was happening, some something like that and I can't remember the exact context but he had huge lots of things going wrong and I think he went to the dentist and had no cavities I think it was something like that and I just said just joking I said oh thank the Lord for little favors he was so stern he says I do not he said I thank God for everything and I mean I was just joking but boom he wouldn't take it not for a second you know, not even as a joke I thank God for everything then that's really a very different attitude, isn't it? So we have to just get out of it all together. We can't just, because it's, it's, all, it's all just oscillation, and that's not what we want. We want the divine stillness forever. Trigunarahita. Ah, very challenging. Patanjali's not for sissies. Let's take a break. <laughs> okay. um, tonight is the last class until June because next Tuesday night is Swami's Moksha Day, so we're having a different program. The day after that, I'm going to New Zealand for three weeks with Pandava and Atma Jyoti, and Dambara is joining us. Even though I come back to America in three weeks, I'm actually in and out of Palo Alto between Ananda Village, Los Angeles, and New York until the middle of June. So I will just be weaving in and out of your lives, but not here regularly. 
but in the month of June, we will have three more classes. It'll probably take all three in order to finish this book. Because of my travels, they will be the 9th, the 16th, and the 30th. You can look on the calendar and you'll see it. If in, for some wild reason we finish on the 16th, we won't have a class on the 30th, but that's the plan at the present. Okay? So come back next week for the Moksha Day event, and then after that, I don't know what's happening in here. All right. Okay. Yes, yes. So it sounds like we're all just actors in the play. Mm-hmm. Is that a good way to look at it? That's what they say. Okay. It's all just a cosmic dream, and we're just and in his hands. Every so often you notice... Wouldn't that be nice just to live your life but not be, really be attached to it? And I guess that's what Ajivan Mukta is doing. I mean, these are just imaginary ideas, but they're just moving through, and that's how Swami described himself. Just it all happened around him, but it never touched him. Didn't mean that he didn't feel it, as I've discussed. Didn't mean that he didn't participate, but there was always that level of inner freedom where it just like, you know, I have to do all this, but like a play. Just exactly like a play, because in a play you really have to get engaged, but you never really, the actor never actually believes that he is that character. I, I, this is completely unrelated, but I was just thinking of this the other day. There was a movie in which Dustin Hoffman and, could it have been Sir Lawrence Olivier? Conceivably, did they overlap in time? But anyway, it was a, it was a famous British accent, actor, and I think it was Sir Lawrence Olivier, and Dustin Hoffman had to play some, some disheveled, upset person, and he ran around outside, and he threw himself in the ocean, and he crawled in the sand, and he did all these things. And, you know, so Lawrence Olivier was drinking tea, and then they came to do the scene, and he sort of, you know, looked at him like, what is with you? He said, well, I'm just getting into the part. And Olivia said, uh, what about acting? <laughs> So there's the difference. <laughs> okay. That occurred to me in a setting in which I couldn't interrupt and say it, but it was such a great story. It just stayed with me. <laughs> so we're going to go on. Sort of right if we go on, we just kind of went by the gunas because we did the gunas really big in three previous sutras. Okay. Number 415. And it says, Owing to differences in various minds... Perception of the same object may vary. Don't you love one that's actually like really comprehensible? (laughs) Owing to difference in various minds, perception of the same object may vary. And then Swami gives us the simplest example. A child of two may consider his six-foot-tall father huge, but a seven-foot-tall basket player may refer to the same man as shorty. (laughs) To a compulsive shoplifter, someone who only occasionally burgles, occasionally burgles homes, may seem relatively honest. (laughs) But to most of us, they both look like thieves. Relativity in this world is simply a reality. And then I'm going to go on to number 460. Nor does the existence of anything depend on the perception of a single mind. Obviously, then, the reality of objective existence is an objective reality. We come back to this. Okay, it is not dismissed by nirvikalpa itself. Nirvikalpa itself. This is an important point because 
many people assert a different philosophy. And if you take philosophy classes in college, like I took, I mean, uh, I took a class in consciousness for about two sessions when I went to college for the year I went to college for the beginning of the time when I actually attended class, okay, having finished all of that. And one of the reasons I didn't, especially this class, was because we sat around and argued just randomly various theories of reality. And, you know, such as, if I disappear, it all disappears. And I wanted to know, if I disappeared, whether it would disappear. I didn't want to really have just a discussion about what do you think, Mary, and what do you think, John. I wanted to know. And it's, I think it's important to know because it goes back to that egocentric reality. Is there an overarching reality or is there just us randomly making it up? To me, it was desperately important. Professor very specifically didn't want to draw conclusions. Patanjali just says this is what the reality is. And it is a very important point because are we the creator of this reality? Are we merely a manifestation of, of the creator? Or are we ourselves the creator? You see what a huge and enormous difference that is? Wow, I would surely not like to be the creator because I don't know what I'm doing. And when I was 18 and did my little random foray into college, I was so conscious of how clueless I was that the mere idea that I was in charge of this was absolutely chilling. And the last thing I wanted was to sit around for a bunch of other people who didn't know what was going on either and guess. It was just terrifying to me on a, you know, on a really, really deep level. I was, you know, I held it together because when you're 18, you don't really, well, you do. People have breakdowns. It was more popular to have breakdowns more now. People didn't have as many then. But that was really what it was. How are we ever going to live through this planet? Where are we going from here? Of course, then... God had a plan, and he brought Swami into my life, who wasn't guessing. He was actually talking about the real thing. And here is Patanjali, too. Nor does the existence of anything depend on the perception of a single mind. Obviously, then, the reality of objective existence is an objective reality. It is not dismissed by Nirbhakalpi. Okay. So then, those are the two that I think are really, we can work with that for a minute. But I think it's pretty obvious you know, but, th- but these are important philosophical points because then everything depends on that. You know, the fact that relativity is a part of objective reality, meaning that just depends on your point of view. And that, that has enormous implications because of, uh, let's see how to say this, because development is directional and what is forward for you may be backward for someone else. And that takes away all dogmatism. That takes away absolutely my way is right and your, can't, your way can't be right. I remember visiting a unity minister in uh, the Northwest when, well, this was you know, many years ago before we came to live here. And he was in charge. He was the, the national leader for their organization of some anti-war, anti-military movement of some sort or another. And he just calmly assumed that I and Ananda would want to join with him in his project. And I had to tell him that I really, I couldn't. I mean, you know, personally, I, obviously I, I didn't favor war. It was complete madness. But I said, for some people, you know, the willingness to die for their country is forward for them. 
And I can't just stand up and say no one has a right to progress in their own way and in their own direction. And it was just bewildering to him because on any other way of thinking at it, why would you not want to stand against that? Of course you would want to stand against it. And yes, in a certain way you should, but at the same time you have to stand back and see. It's all relative, depending, but it's relative to something. See, what people say about relativity is that it's random. Random is not the same. Random is there's no center, there's no direction, there's no meaning. That's what people say now, which is why young people are walking in front of trains, because it's random. There, there's no meaning to this life. There's no direction. You just, and that's why they're cheating left and right and, you know, this um, epidemic of students who are just trying to get grades in response to an educational system that's only concerned about their grades. And then the children, why are they only concerned about their grades? Gee, let me try to think if I can figure this out. It's because it's all random. But relative means there is a point around which everything circulates. Everything is moving inward to the same center. But depending on where you are, how far away you are, which way is forward. And it's really, it's so liberating. That was perhaps one of the most liberating things I ever heard because all of a sudden, you, can, you, know, how to, you know how to have values but not be dogmatic. You, you know how to stand firm for the truth as you know it, but, but also there's room for everyone. And some people are, in fact, moving away from the light, but all they're doing is moving away from the light. They can't possibly become not light because that's just who they are. And that's how you become free in this whole atmosphere, even though unconscionable things are being done all over the place. But still, everybody's just taking their own next step, forward or backward, but there's no... You don't have to worry. Someone is in charge. (laughs) Something is in charge. Some great force is in charge. It was... I. I just, just, you know, everything turned in the right direction as soon as there was a string to pick it up by. You know, it's all, everything since then has been a vast and fantastically interesting refinement of that essential thought. There's a central point. It's about consciousness. We're all moving to expand our consciousness. And we do have to be very careful about that, but people are just doing what they have to do. There's no way. Swami talked about when he went to the Portuncula, into Sisi for the first time, and he was meditating on St. Francis, and he, he felt such extraordinary sweetness, is how he put it. And he prayed. He said, how, how is it possible to be so sweet? And the answer came, by never judging. Just by never judging, just realizing that everybody's moving in the same direction. I've been reading this interesting book by a, 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 Dutch, a Dutch Jew who died at the age of 27 in Auschwitz. And uh, her name was Hetty Helsbrun or something like that. I can't remember her last name right at the moment. Betty? Hetty? It was, I'd never heard of her books before, but she, she wrote letters and diaries. But um, in, in her very brief, she was a fairly confused person, but then she found great faith in God, great inner experience, and then only lived a couple of more years before her life was over. But she writes about, really, you know, just 
looking into the faces of the people who were torturing them and victimizing them and just in trying to see everyone you know in the same light and she did admit that some of the faces and some of the expressions were actually terrifying to her but nonetheless it was still this profound understanding that there was really no difference that everyone was just a center point you know she had all very she discovered all this mostly herself and then you know supported it with objective other people had experiences, other mystics. But just really always just looking for that center point of spirit and realizing that every single being around her, whether it was a flower or one of the Nazi guards, was the center point of spirit emanating out. And she, she tried to learn to hold herself absolutely still so that she could always see that. You know, she, and then she did describe sometimes it was so buried that it was really very difficult to hold but still, that was, that was her basically her sadhana through that whole thing. And whether it's a, you know, uh, some old Jewish person who's about to be shipped out to be exterminated or the man who's throwing her on the train. Very, very interesting. Everybody is the same center point and we're all moving. Anyway, she, she was a beautiful philosophy. I'll try to remember the name of the book. You can write me and ask me. Hills. No, I'm just completely lost. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? Okay, number 417. An object is known or unknown depending on the degree in which the mind accepts it. Very interesting. An object is known or unknown depending on the degree to which the mind accepts it. When he says object, I don't think he means like, you know, like a cup. He just means, you know, something that you're perceiving, something that's outside of your inner reality. Moods can make one deny the existence of something in objective reality, but denial does not change the fact of its existence. And this is where an object is known or unknown depending on the degree to which the mind accepts it. Just merely because we refuse to accept it doesn't change its reality at all. And this is, this is the difference between actual transcendence and mere wishful thinking. Mere wishful thinking is just, you know, to affirm that it's nice. Um, but denial does not change the fact of its existence. Nirvikalpa is uncolored by any mood or prejudice and therefore sees everything as it is. Okay, I remember a woman who was struggling against what she felt was a serious betrayal by a a close friend uh, came to Swamiji and sort of said, well, Swamiji, you know, I think just everything that happened was just really was the, was the right thing. Swami said, no, he said, that person behaved very badly, <laughs> just like that. And uh, he said, don't try to make yourself better by telling yourself a lie. And that's often what we do. We think that to be spiritual is to affirm something and not really see it for what it is. And that's not to be spiritual, that's actually to be the opposite of it. That's to hide from the truth. To be spiritual is to be able to look right at it. Yes, in fact, you know, that person, for example, really behaved, was completely compelled by their desires, and they simply did not behave in as self-sacrificing or as noble a way as they might have. Well, there you have it. Now, does that mean that it has to have an impact on me and that I have to have a reaction and that I have to activate my desires and my attachments? 
That's where your freedom comes from. Not from saying, oh, it was all just really a good thing. It was really such a good thing that happened. You could, you could even say afterwards, it all worked out for the best. But that still doesn't make that initial action anything other than it was. And the person, for your, if it's your own self, you just have to say, just as simply as you can possibly say it. Yes, I was compelled entirely by desire. Yes, my own welfare and my own preferences simply were greater than my adherence to higher principles. That was simply what I did. And then come to peace with that yourself too. Just the degree to which you're willing to accept it. Swamiji wrote once, he said, the, the, the most difficult thing on the spiritual path is to want to do the right thing and know what the right thing is and not be able to bring yourself to do it. And then, he said, not to justify yourself or make excuses or to become discouraged. He said, that's a, that's a very... <laughs> he said, the most difficult thing on the spiritual path is to know what the right thing is, to have a desire to do it, an aspiration, I really want to do the right thing, but not be able to bring yourself to do the right thing because you lack the self-mastery to do so. And then, not to justify it, not to try to rationalize it, and not to become discouraged because of that. It's a very big one, and it's a very important advice. And he said, and he went further, and he said, it, it's, I'm not exactly sure how he phrased it, but basically, it takes a great deal of spiritual experience before you can just do that. And it's not even that you can then do the right thing. It's that you can just do that. You can relate to your own. And Swami's called it, though, the most difficult thing on the spiritual path. It's the hardest thing to deal with. And what that is, is just accepting what is. Because to refuse to accept it doesn't change anything. It just takes the initial failure and lays another complex on top of it. And that's finally, at least from my point of view, what inspires me to be different. It's, it's just, I'm really a practical person. And wow, that just doesn't work, does it? Swamiji himself talked about certain things he was trying to struggle with, and he talked about becoming so um, dismayed by his own um, lack of ability, lack of perfect self-mastery, that he, quote, wept all night. He said the next morning, he was no better. He was just exhausted. <laughs> and he said he saw that was not a good idea. That was, it was not going to take him anywhere he wanted to go. And it just doesn't work. And even that, you know, that indulgence. And then he said further in the same context, master, the effect of, of your, your guru and God on you is to make you feel optimistic and get to give you hope. The effect of Satan is to make you feel discouraged. So whenever you follow that through and the net result of it is that you feel discouraged, you may, you know, you're not acting from divine motive, I want to be better. You've actually allowed Satan to influence you. Because Master doesn't really care. He doesn't care what it takes for us to get free. He just wants us to get free and knows that we'll get there. Swamiji is saying to Master when 
Swami played the part of Christ in the tableau. How was it? Swami answered, well, I'd rather be Christ than merely resemble him in a play. Master, so casually, as Swami put it, and the, the powerful part of it was so casual, oh, that will come. You know, just looking at Swami, oh, yeah, that will come. Of course, you'll be like Christ. Of course you will be. Swami said, Master never saw, I mean, he could see, but he never saw people's weaknesses. He just saw their strengths and then pulled on them because everything else was an illusion. Why would he, why would he put all that energy into the vapors? He put his energy into the gold and just pulled it out. Who cares what's covering the gold? It just doesn't matter, you know, the, the exact chemical composition of the dust. The only point is just to get rid of it. You see the difference? We become very interested in the chemical composition of the dust, somehow believing that that's how to get rid of it. It's very subtle, but very important. Yes, Larry. I was just thinking in a circumstance like what you mentioned, the word yet is very helpful. Yeah, yet. Yes, yet. I want to do it. Yes. I know what the right thing is. I'm just not there yet. I, I, this is the way I've always reasoned it out in my mind. The number of times that I'll do the wrong thing is finite. <laughs> no matter how large, no matter how large, still it's finite. Because at some point, all delusion will end and per- perfection will come in. So maybe this is, I'm, maybe I have 6 million and 17 to do. So now I have 6 million and 16. And, and that's, it's a joke, but it, it's, it helps. It helps a lot. Okay. We used to go to Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. You all know that one of the... We lived in El Paso, Texas, and there wasn't a lot around El Paso, Texas, and Carlsbad Caverns was one. So our family went there a number of times. And as children, it was one of our favorite little family vacations. I I went up and down those caves many times. And uh, my father, who was fond of telling jokes, there there supposedly was a ranger who said, you know, these caves are five million and seven years old. <laughs> Someone said, how could they be that? He said, well, when I came seven years ago, they were five million years old. <laughs> was that the last word, or do we have anything else to say? I think that was the last word, okay. So we went through... Um, we went through from 4.11. We repeated a little on 4.11 through 4.17. Okay. So in June, we'll start on 4.18. Which probably means we'll finish really comfortable in three classes. Okay.